Uh, let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, all your word is given by you and serves uh, your purpose of helping us trust our Lord Jesus for salvation and equipping us through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training to live lives that please you, lives which are rich in doing good. We pray that we would know the work of your word in our hearts tonight, uh, that we would trust our Lord Jesus for eternal life and we would be equipped to live as his followers in this world. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in my weakness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, this uh, summer, as Andrew has uh, said, uh, we're going to have a short series on the shortest letters of the New Testament, uh, 2 and 3 John and Jude. And I didn't know the series had a title, but Andrew came up with a good one, so that's good. Uh, now, these letters deal with issues confronting Christian congregations that are contemporary because they're perennial. Uh, that is, they're ones we face today because they always recur in the life of congregations. Uh, 2 and 3 John both deal with issues in relation to itinerant preachers and teachers, travelling missionaries, how you should receive and support them. And Jude, which is quite different from 2 and 3 John in audience and style, responds to the presence in a congregation of people who want to turn the grace of God into a licence for immorality and dissolute living. All topical issues. And we're going to start this evening with 2 John. You see, no Christian congregation exists in a vacuum. Ah, no, if I... Aha. Nope. Let's try again. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, this is almost... a. Uh, Kind of something we do every week, okay? Uh, right. But let's start with 2, two John. Uh, no Christian congregation exists in a vacuum. Uh, we're always having to engage with other Christians, including other Christians who claim an authority to teach us. Now, sometimes uh, that will be from within a denomination, you know, theological college, lecturers, bishops, moderators, uh, even if you're in Tasmania, in the Anglican Church in Tasmania, somebody who self-publishes her ideas. Uh, sometimes, uh, though, that will be from outside, people seeking to promote their views by getting a hearing in other congregations. And we're always being offered opportunities to support the Christian work of others, either financially or by participating in it, whether that's the work of missionaries or interdenominational groups like AFES or the Gospel Coalition or Scripture Union. Uh, that's just part of the life of modern churches. So who should we give a hearing to? Who should we support? How should we respond to those who claim a right to that support or hearing but with whom we disagree about the faith? These are the issues 2 and 3 John addresses. So these letters come from a time in the early Christian movement when Christian teachers, prophets, evangelists, missionaries were on the move around the Roman world. And you can see that movement already in Acts and the New Testament and the references are there in the transcript. 
And as the number of Christians grew and the number of churches increased, even as the apostles themselves were passing away, there were many more believers on the road, uh, people who were less well-known, travelling gospel preachers, teachers, prophets, as well as believers travelling for business or trade. So there was lots of travel going on. But there was no respectable hospitality industry. You, you couldn't park your motorhome in the big four or book into a local motel. In fact, in, inns in the Roman world were notoriously bad. And so the Dictionary of New Testament Background describes ancient inns, Roman inns, in this way. Available literary and archaeological sources attest to generally ill-kept facilities. Minimal furnishings, bug-infested beds, poor food and drink, untrustworthy proprietors, shady clientele and generally loose morals. So unsurprisingly, the preference for everybody was always to stay with people they knew. And in the New Testament, you see a great emphasis on hospitality, on the need for Christians to provide for strangers, for fellow believers as they're travelling. But this need for an emphasis on hospitality presented two problems to congregations. The first was the risk of exploitation by freeloaders, people pretending to be Christians to get material advantage from Christians' generosity, or people who were Christians but who were tempted by idleness. And so churches worked out some very practical guidelines to deal with this risk. Here's an example from a document called the Didache, a document from the early 100s that's just a few decades after 2 and 3 John. This is their advice. As regards missioners and prophets, every missioner who comes to you should be welcomed as the Lord, but he's not to stay more than a day or two days if it's really necessary. If he stays three days, he's a false prophet. Oh, and a missioner at his departure should accept nothing but as much provisions as will last him to his next night lodgings. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Clear, practical advice. But there was a second problem, and that was more serious. And that was the arrival in a congregation of people who said they were Christians and who claimed to be teachers and prophets, but who were teaching something other than the gospel the apostles preached. Uh, we know from the New Testament that from very early on there were some who called themselves Christians, even as we see in 2 Corinthians, who called themselves apostles but who were teaching a different gospel to the one the apostles preached. And just as pagan philosophers travel from place to place gathering a following and gospel preachers travel from city to city, so these false teachers travelled from city to city seeking a hearing in Christian congregations. And this is a context where there's no central accrediting agency, no database of orthodox or unorthodox teachers a local elder could consult, no trail on Facebook. There's not even the possibility of a telephone call to the pastor of the city they'd last been in to check the bona fides of someone showing up and saying they were a Christian teacher and prophet. And a lot of congregations were actually small, with not a lot of people with extensive training in the scriptures, not a full New Testament. So what were local congregations to do? What tests should they apply to those who came to them? How should they treat them? 
2 John is written to a congregation to answer those questions. And in answering them for that particular congregation, it also gives us principles to engage with other Christians who come from outside the congregation and are either seeking a hearing or support or both. But let's start with the beginning where the author greets his readers. The elder. Now the author just introduces himself as the elder and that's not so much a comment on his age as his office, his role in the life of the believers to whom he's writing. He's someone who has recognised pastoral authority in the congregation to which he writes. And he doesn't use his name because he doesn't need to. He and his position are well known to the recipients of the letter and this letter is more official than personal. Now, who might the elder be? Well, from the earliest times, the elder's been identified as the author of 1 John because there's a great overlap in language used and issues addressed between 1 and 2 John. And the author of 1 John is identified as the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, the Apostle John, who is known in his latter years to have been based in Ephesus in Asia Minor, where he had a long and significant ministry among the churches there. So the Apostle John is the author and John's writing to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. Now some people have suggested he's writing to an individual and her children, perhaps called Eclecta, elect. But most, including me, for reasons included in the transcript, think that the elect lady is a church and her children are its members. So John, the Apostle's writing to a church for whom he has great affection, a church he loves. And John emphasises in this introduction the ground of their relationship, what he calls the truth, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I but also all who know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. See, the truth John is speaking about is more than a set of doctrinal beliefs. The truth is what we receive as we receive Jesus, who is the truth. Receive Jesus through faith in the gospel as the spirit Jesus gives, the spirit of truth gives us understanding and conviction of the truth of the gospel. So to be in the truth is to be in Christ. To know the truth is to know Christ in his word, to have a relationship with him by believing his word. And the truth of Christ remains in us as the spirit of Christ writes it on our hearts so that it transforms our lives. And it is Christ, the truth himself, who will be with us forever. It is this truth, this shared commitment to believing in the Lord Jesus as he's proclaimed in his gospel, particularly that he is the son of the father, that creates a relationship between all believers and it's a permanent relationship, one that goes beyond this life for the truth remains in us and will be with us forever. Now, the fact that it's the truth that creates this relationship should give us pause for thought. You see... Sometimes in the modern church it's suggested that for the sake of unity amongst people who say they're Christians, we should be less insistent on the truth of the gospel. 
And what can drive uh, that advice is, uh, say, a desire to maintain as many as possible in a common front against the secular world or to maintain denominations as inclusive of as many people as possible because numbers equal money and influence, especially if you're at the heart of the denomination. But while there's always a need to distinguish what is of central importance from secondary matters and always a need to ask if we have understood the scriptures correctly, minimising the truth, compromising the truth, will never sustain or improve Christian fellowship, relationships of genuine love amongst believers. For those relationships are founded on the truth experienced in our shared embrace of the truth of Christ in his fullness given to us in his gospel. Diminishing the truth as the ground of relationship with other believers will only attenuate and diminish, not increase, the love that's shown. Compromising on truth for the sake of sustaining Christian relationships will always fail. And believing the truth of Jesus also, we see here, brings relationship with the living God, Father and Son, which is characterised by an experience of God that meets our needs. Verse 3, grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. See, in the truth we know grace, the kindness of God that seeks us out and treats us always with favour. We know mercy that forgives our sin. And as a consequence of grace and mercy, we have peace, peace with God so that we know now that the living God is always for us and we can always turn to him for help and protection. But let's pause because let's face it, grace Mercy, peace, they're familiar Christian words just here, right, in an introduction that's so easy to pass over. But actually grace, mercy and peace are life-transforming experiences. See, grace really is amazing, isn't it? When all is lost, when we are lost, doomed because of our sin, to have God as he has done, come to bring us to himself to safety because he freely chooses to, to bring us to himself by the son coming to die for us. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? Oh, to know we deserve judgment, to tremble before God's justice and to be shown the mercy that pardons us. To be able to live every day knowing you're at peace with the God who rules all things, who makes the sun rise, who knows every hair on your head, who always achieves his purpose, is faithful to his promises. To know grace, mercy, peace will be ours from the Father and the Son who reigns over all. That is a rich privilege and a cause of thankfulness. And these are ours in the truth and love we meet in the gospel of Jesus, his truth, his love, which are the grounds of and always accompany the grace, mercy and peace we receive from him. And so I want to say, if you don't take anything else away from tonight, 
if you are a believer, doesn't matter how ordinary you think you are, how poor you are, believing the gospel, actually coming to know for yourself this grace, mercy and peace has enriched you forever beyond all earthly treasure. So if that's as far as you get in the sermon, well, it's a good place to stay. Grace, mercy, peace. But John in this introduction has brought truth and love to the fore and he now is going to characterise the ongoing Christian life in terms of this truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth in keeping with the command we've received from the Father. So now I ask you, dear lady, not as if I were writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is his command, as you've heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. See, John reminds the church that believers in Jesus are those who walk in truth, verse 4, and love, verse 6. Believers' lives in all they say and do are to be characterised by truth and love. The truth and love we both experience in Jesus when we believe the gospel and which Jesus teaches us. So let's think now about truth and love. Both characterise our experience of God in Christ. You remember, just at Christmas, those of you who are there, John introduced his gospel by saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, glorious the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on to say that grace, which is, which in John is actually God's steadfast love from the Old Testament. He goes on to say that grace and truth come to us through Jesus Christ. And in John's gospel, having introduced it this way, this experience of truth and love then focuses on his death for our sin on the cross. In knowing Christ died for our sins, in believing the gospel, every believer in Christ experiences God's truth and love. The call to walk in truth and love is a call to be like Christ because we have received truth and love in Christ. And both truth and love, they're not empty words. They have content given by God. See, truth has content. It's the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. What at the beginning of the first letter John describes as what they've seen and heard and felt of Jesus, the gospel that fulfills and vindicates God's Old Testament revelation. You see, truth, not what, not whatever you might like to believe of God, you know, your truth, my truth. No, the truth of God is what God has revealed of himself in Jesus, made known to us through the preaching of the apostles, commissioned by Jesus, equipped by Jesus with the spirit of truth and sent into the world by Jesus to speak his word. And so make God known to us and bring his forgiveness. Truth has content and love has content. It's not what I feel is right. It is, verse 6, walking according to our Father's commands. Something the apostles already made clear when he spoke about it 
in his first letter. Oh, the one who says I've come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. Or 1 John 5, this is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God (coughs) and obey his commands. And so if in this coming year you want to be more loving, and you should want to be more loving, if you want to know how to love people, meditate on God's law. And when you have children, if you want your children, here's a parenting tip, getting ahead of you, right? If you want your children to be loving, teach them the Ten Commandments. Right? Help them to be horrified as you should be at the thought of lying and slandering, of stealing and cheating, of doing anything that would endanger the life of another or destroy the marriage of another. Love has content. And notice both truth and love are commanded. See, walking in truth and love are not optional exercises, uh, an exercise for the keen. Walking in truth and love is the beginning, middle and end of the life of every believer. And it is commanded. We are commanded to repent and believe the gospel, to change our minds to embrace God's truth. And so we're not at liberty to pick and choose from it what we like or to set aside parts of it, to refuse to believe what God has said is sin. Oh, and we're commanded to love God and our neighbours, and Christians are especially given the new commandment by our Lord to love one another as he's loved us. Christian love, what John Stott's called the unselfish service undertaken by deliberate choice, that is, a determined seeking the good of others can be commanded because it doesn't depend on our feelings but on faith in our God on which all obedience depends. And not only are truth and love commanded, they are inseparable, never to be divorced from each other. Now think about that. You cannot be a half Christian. You cannot walk in truth, but not in love. So you can't say you're a believer because you subscribe to a doctrinally orthodox set of, set of propositions, but you embrace hate or live a life indifferent to the needs of your brothers and sisters. No, says John, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech but in action and in truth. And so it's always good to ask of what we say or do, is it loving? It's a good test but it needs to be accompanied by truth, because just as you can't walk in truth but not in love, you cannot walk in love but not in truth. Just as you can't keep the law without loving, you can't love without keeping the law, without a commitment to moral truth. You see, feeling something as loving doesn't mean it is. It might just mean it's something you really want to do or facilitating the bad behaviour in another. So, for example, 
loving parents will discipline their children, even if they don't feel like it, because they know that as we sow, so we reap in God's world, and so bad behaviour like lying or lack of self-control will reap bad outcomes. Loving friends will never join or support another in bad behaviour, which will bring God's judgment on them. Rather, they'll rebuke in it. Now, in our society, to walk in truth and love takes some thought because our world has largely abandoned the idea of truth, especially of moral truth, and it wants love without truth, just as it wants grace without repentance. And in fact, our world may demand that of Christians. It might slander you as unloving if you call what God condemns sin and don't accept it. Or the person concerned might, well, attack you if you don't support bad behaviour by, for example, giving a gambling addict money when they demand it. Or, again, you might be told you're unloving if you insist that relationships can only be restored by repentance. But those examples, calling what God condemns as sin, sin, not supporting bad behaviour, insisting on restoration by repentance, are actually all loving because all of them offer an opportunity of repentance towards God an opportunity to get right with the God who is the judge of all. And that is loving in truth. We mustn't divorce love and truth from each other. And doing so is the cause of much grief and difficulty in the present and it can imperil people's eternity. So, think of ending one year. Moving into the next, how are you going? Walking in truth and love. Because that is the Christian life. But don't be in a rush to answer. You actually need to know God's word. Meditate on his truth to answer that. And yes, you need time to prayerfully reflect on your life to answer it. Perhaps something that's something you can do as you wait for the year to end. But that is the Christian life, walking in truth and love. But why does John give this summary here? And why does John emphasise the need to walk in love in this summary? See, knowing what is coming as we do, because we've read the whole book, in this context, the stress on love surprises us, doesn't it? When dealing with false teaching, we'd expect him to stress the command to walk in truth. Yet John introduces what he says about false teachers with a because. It's not there in the English translation, but it's so important. This is what he writes. This is the command, as you've heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love because many deceivers have gone out into the world. See, John wants you and I to know that resisting false teaching is not about power. It's not about a commitment to some kind of sterile and abstract truth. Now, resisting false teaching is about love. And why that's the case becomes clear as we consider their error and its consequences. Many deceivers, he writes, have gone out into the world. 
They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. The error of these teachers I want to bring in the, to the congregation in John's care is about Jesus. They don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, we're not given a lot of detail about their thinking, but it appears that they're claiming that the physical man Jesus was not the saviour or son of God. Jesus Christ, in their view, actually Jesus Christ, he was an exalted heavenly saviour, a spiritual figure who may have temporarily inhabited the body of the man Jesus, oh, and may have brought spiritual enlightenment by his teaching, but he was not one with the man Jesus in his birth or death. You see, they were denying what John affirmed at the beginning of his gospel, that the eternal word who is with God in the beginning and who is God became flesh, came amongst us as a real man. Now, this is the error John's already addressed in his first letter. Who is a liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, or 1 John 4. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, John doesn't elaborate on why they deny Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, but it is a devastating denial. See, denying Jesus Christ has come in the flesh severs the link between what the Lord Jesus is doing and the Old Testament, which speaks both of the goodness and redemption of creation, of the establishment of the rule of God in his Christ over his people and all creation. Oh, denying Jesus has come in the flesh actually denies atonement through the death of Jesus, real forgiveness of all our sin. Denying Jesus has come in the flesh makes the resurrection into a spiritual symbol, not the conquest of death, the death we experience in the death of our bodies. Denying Jesus has come into the flesh turns salvation by grace into an elitist salvation by works. Only those who can follow the teaching of Jesus perfectly as these false teachers peddle it can be saved. There's no salvation through the gracious provision of forgiveness. To deny Jesus is the Christ in the flesh, the Son of God who became incarnate, is to destroy the gospel. It's to preach another faith. This error is the one John's already counted in his first letter with his insistence on the physical, tangible experience of Jesus by his followers. At the very beginning of his letter, he insists that what he and other apostles preached is, as I've said before, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands. A real man walking amongst them, a real man dying, a real man rising. And yet now this same error is coming to the church John is writing to. And he characterises those bringing it as deceivers, that is, people who are just telling lies, things they've made up from their own imaginations as opposed to the apostles 
telling us what they've seen and experienced, what God made known to them through his real son. Deceivers and antichrists. That is, even though they may talk (coughs) about their spiritual Christ, suggest that they're rescuing him from ignorance, these people are actually opposed, anti to the real Jesus Christ, denying him his victory and reign. And John warns his readers of the seriousness of believing them, of what's at stake. Watch yourself, he says, so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. Watch out, he says, and he's talking to us. Believers, you see, are responsible for themselves to be alert and to reject error. You can't outsource that vigilance. And we need to be alert because being taken in by them, believing their lie will only result in loss, the loss of what all believers strive for, our eternal reward. So it is really serious to believe their error to go beyond and not remain in Christ's teaching. Now, Christ's teaching, you could also say it as the teaching of Christ, and that is both teaching about Christ and teaching by Christ because Christianity's view of Jesus originates with Jesus for he is the one who teaches us about himself. For example, think of all the I am's in the gospel. I'm the vine, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection of life. They are all given by Christ himself. And as you heard in John 14, and it's repeated throughout the gospel, Jesus is the one who teaches that he's sent from the Father, that he's in the Father and the Father's in him, that he is one with the Father. And the Lord Jesus is also the one who teaches us that he must die, must be lifted up to draw all men to himself. Teaching the apostles found so hard. It all starts with him. To go beyond, to put your own ideas in the place of what Jesus has taught us about himself is dangerous, says John, because it means you won't have God. Now, having God's a strange way of speaking, isn't it? But it's a phrase that speaks of having the truth about God and having a relationship with the living God through believing that truth he has made known about himself. And that relationship, having God, is impossible where you don't remain in Christ's teaching. You see, Christ is the revelation of God, the one who makes him known. To go beyond Christ is then to substitute what you might like to believe about God for what God has said about himself. And that just leaves you relating to an empty, powerless fiction. Oh, Christ is the only way to the Father. You heard him say that. To go beyond Christ is to have lost the way, to be unable to come to the Father. Christ is the Son who exercises the Father's rule. To go beyond Christ is to put yourself outside God's rule, to become again a rebel against God. Our Christ is the only one who can give the spirit of God. And so to go beyond Christ is to be unable to worship the Father as he desires. 
in spirit and truth. By contrast, the one who remains in that teaching, this one, says John, has both the Father and the Son. See, taught by Jesus, we can confess Jesus as he is, the unique Son of the Father. And trusting him, we can know the Father as our Father through faith in the Lord Jesus. And knowing and trusting, we have relationship with both the Father and the Son. The Father who is our Father, the Son who is our Saviour. You see, in the Christian life, believers grow like fruitful trees by staying put in the teaching of Christ. Believers make progress, progress in truth and love, by remaining, remaining in the truth of Christ. And it's because this danger brought by this false teaching is real and serious that John has stressed the need to walk in love because love will take action to prevent this teaching which brings catastrophic loss finding a foothold in their congregational life. Love will take the action John now commands. <coughs> if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your home and do not greet him, for the one who greets him shares in his evil works. So John is very clear that believers must not do anything that would support the spread or reception of lies. And so there must be no material support. In, in the case of the people to whom John is writing, that's making available the hospitality of believers' homes. In our case, well, that material support usually takes the form of giving money. We mustn't give money to false teachers. Oh, and John says there must be no form of association or recognition that suggests we endorse them and their teaching. For his first readers... That was giving them a greeting. For us, it might be advertising their events or joining their team or sharing a platform with them. But John's clear, isn't he? The one who greets him shares in his evil works. And it is an evil work to deny someone eternity. Now, we might be uncomfortable with the clarity of John's instruction not to associate with these deceivers fearful even of the world's mocking our lack of unity or perhaps of the condemnation of other believers who might prize unity over truth. But John's not talking about separating from unbelievers or about how we might treat other believers with whom we might differ on a wide range of subjects. John is talking about how to respond to someone claiming to be a teacher of the Christian faith who by their denial of Jesus Christ is destroying the faith and so denying people the opportunity of salvation, condemning them to eternal judgment. In these cases, we mustn't confuse love with middle-class politeness, with being nice. Oh, and we mustn't give way to fear of conflict. See, Jesus didn't. He wasn't nice. 
Remember, he could say to the Pharisees who shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces things like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides, snakes, broods of vipers. How can you escape being condemned to hell? That's the Lord Jesus speaking. So there is good reason to be careful about whom we associate with. Good reason to insist like AFES or the Gospel Coalition or the Presbyterian denomination to only give a platform to those who can agree to their doctrinal statement. And there's also good reason to not take part in interfaith services as if all religions are equal. Because, you see, we don't want to suggest or give the impression that you can have a relationship with a living creator God without faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. We don't want to suggest that there really are other ways to the Father. Now, of course, you have to be discerning about what matters. But there are things that matter, that are matters of life and death. For example, what we believe about the Lord Jesus, his incarnation, atoning death, resurrection. Oh yes, justification by faith. And yes, I'd add scripture as the true and final authority for all believers. We cannot support or associate with those who teach lies as truth. Now you might be thinking, how is this different from the ugly cancel culture that we've seen on campus and social media? Well, it is different. Not providing a platform to someone is quite different from preventing someone from using a platform another has provided for them. They're two different things. We don't provide a platform. See, congregations are not debating societies. We've been brought into existence by the living God through the gospel of his son, through which gospel he's made us his own. And our life is in holding fast to the truth of the gospel, remaining in the teaching of Christ. Well, John's given them a lot to think about and some clear instructions to keep them going. And he's actually used up his one piece of parchment because that's what's determined the length of this letter. It's about 300 words, one piece of parchment. But he knows he's got a lot more to say for their benefit. But rather than write, he wants to see them and talk face to face. And I know I've given you a lot to think about already, but here's just one other kind of incidental thing. What John writes here is a good reminder to us in a world of text and emails that in John Stott's words, talking face-to-face is a more satisfactory method of communication between persons than writing. Spoken words are less easily misunderstood than written words because it's not only by language that the speaker conveys his meaning, but by the tone of his voice and the expression on his face. Take that to heart, all you who are good with your thumbs, right? There is no substitute for personal relationship and in-person visits for communication that can build up someone in truth and love. 
And let me say, uh, some of you know this by experience, I will never engage with you in any kind of long or detailed issue by text or email. I'll want to talk with you. Well, it's a little letter, but hopefully it's given you and me a lot to think about. As we go into the new year, let's be people who walk in truth and love because we have met these. We know them for ourselves in our God. Father, Son and Spirit, the God who in bringing us to know his truth and love has shown us grace, mercy and peace. And as part of our determination to walk in truth and love, let's be people who reckon that it is never loving to abandon truth or to let it be obscured or confused. To be people who never let convention, niceness, get in the way of clarity about God's saving gospel. People who never let other people's views of Jesus displace the teaching of Jesus about himself. And yes, let's focus our support on those who are faithful to that word and who preach the truth as we have received it from the apostles. And let's do that because we love. And love wants believers to receive the full reward. And love wants others to know the truth and love only experience by believing the gospel the apostles preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, the unique son of the father the one in whom we have received grace and truth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we can come here this evening, ordinary people, and hear your word. And in believing the gospel that Christ has died for our sins and risen, come to know your grace, your mercy, and the great blessing of being at peace with you, the living, righteous and holy God. And we thank you that in believing that gospel, you have brought us to know the truth and love which are in Christ and you have called us to live as your children, to live lives of truth and love. Please work in us by your spirit so that we hold fast to the truth. And we live lives which are rich in doing good because we have been changed by your spirit to love others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.